Father, thank you so much again for this morning and for this chance to gather as your people to hear you speak to us, to challenge us to keep living solely by your grace, empowered by your spirit. There are going to be things in here that are tricky to understand and we pray for a heart that's reflective, a heart that is honest, a heart that looks within to first look at ourselves, to not hear these words and think of our neighbor, but to think of, hear these words and to think of ourselves and the ways in which we stumble. We pray that you would open our hearts graciously so that we might turn from trusting our rules, or trying to live out your laws alone, to trusting your son, Jesus, alone. Father, help us to do this, even as we continue to wrestle with sin and wrestle with the things that we read this morning, for your glory's sake and for our joy, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you went to a bookstore and uh, had a look around the different shelves, you'd probably find a really big section called self-help books with these titles, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, How to Win Friends and Influence People, The Power of Now. Right? What a, well, that's a great title, The Power of Now. Right? You just want to grab that and read it. Here's a book title you probably wouldn't find. Your Worst Life Now, The One-Step Secret to Making Your Life Miserable. Do you want to know what that secret is? Come back next week. No, actually, I'm kidding. Um, I've been told I do that a lot. Um, here's the secret. You ready? The One-Step Secret to Making Your Life Miserable. Here it is. Make religion and faith all about keeping rules. If you want to know the quickest way to make your spiritual walk a miserable experience, make it all about keeping rules. Have you ever noticed that the most religious rule keepers also tend to be the most miserable? They tend to be narrow-minded, they are often very stubborn, and they're usually fairly serious people. It's a miserable life. Not only because it doesn't sound fun, but also because focusing on rule keeping leads you inevitably into two miserable places. First, it leads you into more and more legalism. Everything becomes about the rules. Everything is serious. There is no laughter or joy in your faith. Legalism is deadly serious business. Or it leads to despair. Because you realize you can't do it. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you want to live, even by good rules, you fail at it. And you fail at it so much that you despair. It goes to your heart and it overflows in guilt. See, in Paul's day, there were a group of believers who were living miserable lives. Remember in Rome, Paul is dealing with a divided church. After a number of years in exile, Jewish Christians were coming back into Rome, back into their church, now filled with Gentiles, non-Jews, and looking, not, look, not looking anything like the church they left behind. And so there was division and arguments. And it was these Jewish Christians who were trying to put one arm around Jesus and one arm around the laws of the Old Testament, trying to do both. And so Paul writes to them in chapter 7, verse 1. Read with me. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, 
that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Speaking as a fellow Jewish Christian, Paul is now taking them on a journey in this chapter, trying to convince them that what they were, go- what they were doing was going to lead them to misery. So he opens up chapter 7 in the middle of a conversation. Uh, chapter 6 and 7 are a bit of a unit together, and the ideas of this part, of this section, are kind of threaded and weaved through both chapters. In chapter 6, he was probably mostly addressing the Gentile Christians in the church, and now he turns his attention to these Jewish Christians. And chapter 7's main subject is the law. Right? The law in question here is the law of the Old Testament. I think it's the best way to understand it. The Ten Commandments and all the other laws found in Exodus to Deuteronomy. And this isn't the first time he's mentioned the law either in the book. Right? Paul has touched it a few times already in the book of Romans. You see it in the second half of chapter 2. He speaks to Gentiles who obey God's laws and being a law to themselves and being judged by that. In that same chapter, he speaks to the Jews who boast about relying on the law. In chapter 3, verse 19 to 20, Paul speaks about the law shutting every mouth, exposing sin, and with no person able to be justified by the works of the law, and the law's work of bringing knowledge of sin. Chapter 3, verse 21, one of the first lines of the greatest news of the gospel He begins by telling us that the righteousness of God has appeared apart from the law. It wasn't in the law, it didn't come through the law, but outside of the law, although the law and the prophets pointed to it. Chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says there that the law brings wrath. Chapter 5, verse 20, the law came to increase the trespass. Chapter 6, verse 14, believers are not under law, but under grace. Now, through the book of Romans, he's been kind of dropping these little breadcrumbs about the law on the issue. And Paul now turns his attention fully to it. These Jewish Christians were choosing to live a miserable life. And Paul is now going to do his best to talk them out of it. So he begins with an illustration from marriage. You look at verses 1 to 3 of our passage uh, this morning, and Paul gives a basic principle of the law. It's only binding as long as the person lives. Right, picture it simply. A woman is married to a man. Right? She is bound by the law of marriage to her husband as long as they live. So if she were to go to be with another man while her husband still lives, then she would be committing adultery. Make sense? And of course, it works in reverse as well, obviously. If he, if he go, would go to be with another woman while she was still alive, then he would be committing adultery. But the point of the illustration is this. It comes in verse 4. Read with me. Likewise, in the same way, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that, they, that we may bear fruit for God. The point is not to say that we are like the woman and the law is like the husband. That's not the the point of the illustration. The point is to say that death changes things. When death happens, change happens. Death frees you from the law. Harking back to what he has just said in the first half of chapter 6, Paul is saying that by believing in and trusting Jesus, you are united to Jesus in his death, and you have died as well. His death, and your uniting to that death, frees you from having to obey the law for your salvation. Death 
frees you from the law. Jesus' death frees you from the law. Also harking back to what he has just said in the second half of chapter 6. He says in chapter 7, verse 6, Because we have died with Jesus, we have died to what, had hold, has to, we have died to what held us captive prisoners. He says, now we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We have died with Jesus. We have been set free from our old master, master death. And we have been raised to new life with Jesus to serve a new master, master Jesus. So here in chapter 7, verse 6, Paul is saying this new life in the Spirit. This is new life in the Spirit. With God, with now, we now have God's Holy Spirit to help us serve Jesus and God the Father. We don't need to go back to what was written in the Old Testament, the written code. Now, in the middle of that discussion, Paul says something very interesting in verse 5. Right, notice what he says. Read with me. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law... We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. You see that there? Our sinful nature, that force at work within us to rebel against God, is actually aroused by the law. It's woken up. It's enticed. It's stirred up. It's provoked to action. When we encounter God's law, instead of waking up and responding with obedience to God, our sinful nature perks up, and kicks into gear. We respond with disobedience. Now this leads to the obvious question in chapter 7, verse 7. Is the law sin? If I'm encouraged to sin because of the law, then doesn't that make the law part of the problem? Now as with last week, Paul answers with an emphatic, by no means, no way. Don't even go there. Right? There's, there's no way that God's laws are bad or part of the problem. And he gives two reasons why. The first is in verse 7. The law is there to help make sin known. The law helps me to know what sin is. And he gives an example of coveting. Right? Wanting what another person has to a degree that is wicked. Now, if you're hungry and you see me eating something and you wish that you had that same thing, that's not necessarily coveting. Coveting is when I have something and you say in your heart, I deserve that more than anyone else, even more than you. I should have that, not you. I need what you have because what God has given me right now is not enough. And so Paul says that when he understood that law, then he finally understood his actions. The law helped him know what sin was. Secondly, what happens next is where it gets painfully worse. You see, the law helps me know what is wrong, but the law isn't the problem. The problem is my sinful nature. You see, what happens is that sin is a force and a power at work deep within me. It's me. It is me. It's in, inseparable from me. It's not some external force or power. It's at the very heart of who I am. And, and what sin does is it takes the knowledge of what is wrong in God's sight and it compels me to want to do that. And my sinful nature goes along with it, willingly. Though, is the law part of the problem of sin? No. The problem isn't the law. It's me. It's my sin. Now, before I got married, I thought I'd try and get fit. <laughs> Worked, as you can see. So, I began running. 
around my neighborhood. I hate running. I'm going to talk about running later. I hate it. But one afternoon, I was jogging along, and this massive Rottweiler came, right, barking and sprinting up to me. He was not chained. There was no fence. He sprang to life. He heard me coming. He sprang to life, and he came to mow me down. Obviously, I survived. Sin is a little like that in our lives. This that big passive giant beast is sin. It's there. You, you're kind of precariously living with it. But when the law comes, it springs to life and it charges at you to mow you down, and it kills you. You see Paul's conclusion in chapter seven,、uh, verse twelve. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous. The law ends up bringing us death rather than life, because sin takes that commandment and it kills you through it. It's not the law's problem; it's your sin. The law isn't bad. What happens is that our sinful nature, made aware of what is wrong, seeks to do that wrong thing. The law then makes even me even.、Uh, More aware of the deep pit that I find myself in, and so if anyone is to blame, it's not the law; it's me. So if the law is good, and I'm the one to blame, that raises the next question in verse 13: Did that which is good then bring death to me? Right? Does the good law bring death? Is that the purpose of the law to make us feel guilty and bad, and then kill us? Again, the resounding answer is no way. No, the purpose of the law isn't just to make us feel bad. The purpose of the law is to expose how utterly sinful we are. He says in verse thirteen, "Sin is what kills you. Sin produces death." And ultimately, the law is there to shine a spotlight on how sinful you are. Right? The law is a microscope. It's able to magnify the molecular world for us. See, on the outside, we might look neatly pressed and clean, and we might smell nice. But the law is the microscope that shines an ugly spotlight on how infested, disease-ridden, and dirty we really are. Now, remember, Paul is speaking to Jewish Christians here. He's addressing a group of Christians who have been trying to walk by having Jesus in one arm and trusting the law of the Old Testament in the other. And Paul says that this doesn't work. You're not meant to do that with the law. And in the and in fact, sin in your heart makes trying to do that even worse. And so he shares this very painful reality in verses fifteen to twenty. Right? If you've battled with persistent unwanted sin in your life, then these words have a painful resonance. But here, Paul is speaking of a particular battle, a battle to try and live by the law and to deal with his sin. You can see the clues of this in verse 15. I do not do what I want. So we have to ask, what is it that you want to do? In verse 16, he says that his bad actions agree with the law, showing that it's good. So his bad actions confirm the law he is trying to live out. In verse 18, again, he has a desire to do what is right, and then finally in verse 22, he says that he delights in the law of God in his inner being. So this particular battle. In verse fifteen and twenty, this whole I I don't I do what I want I want to do this but I don't do it and the thing I don't want to do I end up doing that. This whole battle is is Paul wanting to do wanting to keep God's good laws. He's wanting to he delights in it. His true inner self, which has been made new in Jesus, loves the law of God 
But this whole section reveals how badly he does it keeping it. Real bad. He hears what God wants and he rebels against it. He hears what God hates and he loves to do it. And all the while, it's sin dwelling in him that helps him to delight in rebelling against God. That's an old saying, live by the sword, die by the sword. And Paul is saying here, live by the law and you'll die. If you're trying to live, by, live your life by rules, you'll fail. If Paul couldn't do it, what hope do any of us have? And so he cries out in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The quickest way to make your spiritual walk a miserable experience is to make it all about keeping rules. Is there another way? Yes. Verse 25. It's found in Jesus. The grace of the gospel. Faith in Jesus alone, by grace alone, trusting Jesus and being united with him, to live with him as our new master. That leads to freedom from trying to live by the law. That leads to freedom from having sin as our slave master. All right, God's law is good. Its main purpose, though, is to shine a spotlight on our sin. And then our sinful nature takes it and uses it against us, enticing us to rebel against God because we are sinful beings we willingly follow. And if we try to live by the law and live by faith in Jesus at the same time, we end up in a miserable mess. But thanks be to God that there is freedom found in knowing, believing, and trusting Jesus. Four things then for us to reflect on as we leave. Three general and one specific. First, remember that rules and rules alone Boundaries aren't necessarily bad. They're not necessarily bad. Paul does say here that the law is good. There are some rules and laws that we need to observe in life. Paul isn't saying in this chapter that all we need is Jesus and we can do then whatever we want. Right? He's already, he's already addressed that in Romans chapter 6. See, not only does he repeat that union with Christ means having him as our new master, he'll go on later to say in chapter 12 onwards, that having faith in Jesus, being united to him, and having him as our new master, all of that will necessarily mean obeying and doing things that Jesus now says. Right? I may not be under the law of the Old Testament, but if I follow Jesus, I am under the law of Christ. So it might be in our lives that a few more rules and boundaries are necessary to help us grow in our godliness and holiness. Personal rules, right? So don't, as a principle, reject the idea of rules and laws. They aren't necessarily bad in of themselves, but they aren't enough alone to keep us holy and pure. If you want to live your worst life now, if you, to have a miserable life, then you live your faith trusting your rules and your rules alone. Right? There's, another, there's one way of saying, I trust in Jesus... And for me personally, that follows out in certain ways. Call them rules. And it's another way to say, I trust in Jesus and my rules. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's he's against that. It's a disaster waiting to happen to rely on them alone to grow our, our faith. Now, if it's not clear already, let me be crystal clear now. 
we are, no longer, we are no longer under the law of the Old Testament. We are not obligated in any way to keep any laws because they appear in the Old Testament. Right? I know an older couple who told a younger Christian at our church that it was against God's law to eat rare steak. Why? Because in Leviticus, it says, you shall not eat meat with its blood still in it. Now, there's ways to deal with that situation lovingly and carefully, Right? And you might personally not like rare steak, that's fine. You might be pregnant, that, you know, don't eat rare steak then, that's a good idea. But on principle, on principle, Paul is clear. You are not under any obligation to any Old Testament laws. Because remember what our sinful hearts do with these rules, with these laws. Right? Rules aren't necessarily bad. But the problem is always with our hearts. When we make our rules and laws central, then we are boiling our faith down to just rules and just laws. Just keep within these boundaries and God will give you a stamp of approval. But our sinful nature won't let us do that. It will make living by rules the death of us leading us to further and further miserable legalism or throw us into a miserable pit of despair and failure. And maybe some of us here today have recognized the miserable life we've worked ourselves into simply because we've been trusting our rules or laws above everything else. And if that's you, come back to Jesus. There is grace in him. There is more grace found in him than there is failure found in you. There is more grace found in Jesus than there is failure found in you. And that goes for all of us. We need to keep coming back to Jesus and keep coming back to the gospel and trusting it. We need to keep preaching it to ourselves and to each other. Otherwise, we will begin to rely on our own performance and our own rules. We need to lovingly and gently and consistently beat the gospel into our heads. Because when we do that, we are reminding our heads and our hearts of our one great hope in life, that I have died with Jesus and have been raised to new life with him, and that compels me to walk with him in newness of life. Three general things there. Rules aren't necessarily bad, but they aren't enough alone. So keep coming back to Jesus. Finally, we need to keep wrestling with sin. Even those of us who are not rules-oriented, right, the wrestle with our sinful nature is real. To not give in to it. So let's get personal with this. How much are you wrestling with sin? And again, what is sin? I know people here are wrestling with all sorts of things. Remember, sin is not brokenness. It's not mental health issues. It's not depression. It's not illness. Those things are real wrestles that we struggle with. But sin is not that. Sin is our inner bent towards rebelling against God. Of me saying to God, no, I will do things my way. I think it's a sign of true conversion. A truly converted Christian 
is someone who is waging war against sin in their life, who is struggling and wrestling with sin. They are not happy with who they are. They are, not wanting, they are wanting to grow in their holiness and godliness. They are wanting to grow in knowing God in a better, deeper, and more intimate way. And it's hard work. To battle against sin means, means being honest with yourself. It means reflecting on how our words, our thoughts, our actions have hurt others. And being ready and willing to say sorry for that, to apologize and to seek reconciliation. To battle against sin also means reflecting on how our words, thoughts and actions have offended God. To recognize our sins, identify them and repent of them. It's hard work. So let me ask you, are you battling hard? What sort of reasons are there for not battling hard? I think over my time and my experience of uh, ministering to people and looking at my own life, I think I, I can see three main things, three main reasons why people don't wrestle hard with their sin. The first is laziness. Right? You roll over. You give up too easily. Or you just don't think and engage with your faith. Right? I've heard people say, I'm not much of a reader. I'm, I'm not a reader, so... You know, I'm very slow at this. No, you'll learn something if you delight in it. I had one guy say to me, I'm not much of a reader. You ask him, you know, where the best food places are in town, and he'll tell you. He knows. He delights in these things, so he reads up, he finds out more about these things. I know guys who are really into cars and can tell me the ins and outs of every single car and, and model and make, and I'm not a reader, but I'll read that. I know other guys who are into their soccer. They'll tell me all the stats about Lionel Messi and how, where he graduated from and how, you know, how many kilometers on average he ran last year and how many goals he kicked. Um, but I'm not a reader. Yes, you are. We will always find out more about the things that we delight in. Maybe we're just lazy. And if that's you... The warning is that you may not actually be a Christian. You're in danger of not actually being a Christian. So there are two things to do. Repent. If you recognize this bent of laziness in your heart, repent of that. Acknowledge it. Say sorry to God and turn away from it. And then pray and ask God to restore the joy of knowing him, of wanting to know him, of delighting in him. Some of us are tired. Some of us are just physically tired and weary. You've got no energy left to fight. Maybe it's age. Maybe it's the fact that you've got no sleep. Maybe it's the fact that you're a young parent and your kids and the stress of life is just too much. And so you're tired. Sin is there, and you roll over because you're tired. Receive, then, encouragement from others around you. That's what we need the most at that time, to keep pursuing fellowship with others, to receive encouragement from others. Before I said earlier that I hate running, um, a, few, a couple of years ago, 
Um, I started running with our neighbors around our suburb. It's terrible, right? I realized I was allergic to it. <laughs> I really was. My legs, my shins began to hurt. My body said, "No, stop it," right? Uh, and one of the things, though, is that on, in my in the place in my suburb, my street, Tilbrook Street, is really flat. But the street parallel to me, Greenford Street, has this massive hill. It just goes on forever and ever. It probably doesn't. It just feels that way. Right? And so when you're running along, you, 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 you do this path where you're running along, and it's all flat, 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 hill. And all you can see is hill. The curvature of the earth makes the top just disappear. Right? I'm exag- probably exaggerating a little. Now, at, there's this one person who owns his house, and he owns a boat, and it's at the top of the hill. And so when I was running, I used to run with Andrew and Terence and uh, Mel, and you know we'd be running along, and they'd be like miles ahead. And then Terence, like he's a bit of a freak, he would run, and then he'd run back to me and go, "Come on, Steve! Come on, Steve!" He'd run ahead, and then he'd run back to me and go, "Come on, Steve! Come on, Steve!" Now he'd get, we'd get to the hill, and then he'd say, "Okay, Steve, just run to the boat. Just get to the boat, and then we can walk." All right, just get to the boat. Come on, Steve, get to the boat. Get to the boat. Get to the boat. He'd be running back up and down. Get to the boat. Get to the boat. And that would force me up to the boat, and we'd stop, and we'd walk the rest of the way. All right. That's what we all need. If you're tired, you're looking, you're looking at that hill, you're looking at the battle of sin, and you're tired. And what you need is you need people around you to say, "Get to the boat, keep going, keep wrestling." We'll get to that finish line, and then we'll enjoy a glorious walk with God in heaven. Keep running, keep going. You do yourself a disservice when you cut yourself off from that. When you say, "Like I don't, I'm too tired, so I won't go to Bible study this week," because we need it, especially when we're tired. Third one, last one. Uh, maybe you're not battling with sin because of idolatry in your life. Maybe you've embraced sin. Maybe you delight in it. Right? Sin gives you pleasure as you're clicking through the images on the screen late at night. It gives you meaning as you, your personal identity is fulfilled in that satisfying work that you pour more of your time and your energy into. Your personal identity is filled and, and you have meaning as you pour more time and energy into the study and finding that kind of success there. Maybe you find delight in the status. You're too busy building that career or building the grades or you know, growing that part of life. Maybe you delight in sin because it gives you power. It gives you a sense of control in your life. But it's all false pleasure. All of that false pleasure from your idols is ultimately the fruit of death and will ultimately end in the fruit of death. Maybe that, that, that work, that job, that wherever you're finding your identity, your fulfillment, your satisfaction in you know, your work or your career or your studies or wherever, in your family even, it gives false meaning. It's a false status. It's, a, it's false power. It will never eternally satisfied. 
if you're in this place where you're not fighting because you've embraced sin, if there is no wrestle in your life, then Paul is saying there is no spirit in your life. And if there is no spirit in your life, you can only expect condemnation from God. You will stand before Him stripped of everything you've put your trust in, naked and ashamed before Him. But remember, there is always grace if you would turn to it. Thanks be to God who has released us from this body of death. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Today, the big take-home point, if if you've put your trust and your faith in Jesus, is to wrestle with sin. Now, what does that look like? Ha, come back next week. And Romans 8, in all its glory, will show us how to battle and live in the Spirit. Let me pray. Father in heaven, while these are tricky and difficult words, we pray that you'd help us to see with clarity that it is a warning against trusting laws, even good laws, trusting rules alone to help in our battle against sin. Because we will, we've seen today, uh, we've, we've read today, and help us to keep refreshing ourselves as we read this passage again and again, that it is a battle we will lose if we trust in the wrong thing. Sin is powerful, but Jesus is greater. And thanks be to God, thanks be to you, that you have released us from death. You've released us from this body of death to live with Jesus as our new master, to keep trusting him. So help us to do that for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.